The scripture passage we'll be looking at this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, and I'll read the first four verses. Please give your attention. This is God's holy word. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? One of the most profound children's stories that I know is the one that's called The Emperor's New Clothes. It's about a very vain, self-centered king who is obsessed with dressing well. He seems to only care about wearing the finest, most expensive, most elaborate and glorious clothes that he can find. One day, two con men who had swindlers who had heard about this propensity of the king came to town and they met with the king and they promised to create for him a very special suit of clothes that were more glorious, more beautiful than any clothes that any king had ever worn. He said one of the unique factors of these clothes, this suit of clothes that they would make for him, is that it had a magic quality about it so that only those who were wise and noble could see the clothes. And those who were foolish and unsuited to their position in life wouldn't be able to see the clothes at all. And so the swindlers work long and hard, supposedly, to create these clothes, and finally they pretend to carry clothes into the throne room of the king. And they show the clothes to him, and he, of course, can't see anything, but he can't admit that in his pride. So he pretends that he sees them and that they're the most glorious clothes he's ever seen. And so the con men dress him up in these imaginary clothes, and all of his courtiers, all his advisors, his servants... They don't want to admit that they can't see the clothes either, so they praise how beautiful and glorious the clothes are. So the king decides to go out in a procession through the town wearing these imaginary clothes, and the townspeople don't want to admit that they're foolish and not suited to their station in life, so they shout the praises of the glorious clothes that the king is wearing. Well, you know how the story ends. It's one small, humble child who cries out, but the king isn't wearing anything at all. Well, I will resist the temptation this morning to use that story as a basis for any commentary on the current political leaders or candidates. Instead, I would like to point out how that story, the message of that story, is so close to the message that Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians at the beginning of this letter. Remember back at the beginning in chapter 1, he immediately begins to address a problem of divisions in their midst. 
how somehow, and we don't know the details, what was causing the divisions in the church, but somehow it was related to the fact that the Christians were identifying themselves with different apostles and preachers and teachers, and some were saying, I am of Paul, and others were saying, I follow Apollos, and others were saying, I follow Peter. But Paul then leaves that, he points out the problem of the division without really describing it, but then he starts talking about wisdom and foolishness. And he spends the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 addressing the difference between what he calls worldly wisdom, the wisdom of the fallen world, those who have not been given the Holy Spirit, and the wisdom of the people of God, the wisdom of God, the wisdom as it's revealed from heaven. And he shares with the Corinthians how the world considers God's wisdom to be foolishness, particularly the wisdom that is focused upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, while God looks at the wisdom of the world and calls it foolishness. And so Paul is laying out this scenario that this is the tension that you and I have to live with every day, is that we've been given the wisdom from God, but the world looks at our wisdom and says that's foolishness. And yet we look at the world's wisdom and say that's foolishness. And that makes life difficult for us in a fallen world in many ways. But Paul, what he recognizes is that the root problem is pride. That the Christians in Corinth were wanting to measure up by the world standards. They didn't like being considered foolish. And so they were buying into, they were trying to syncretize the, the truths that they were learning from the scripture with the truths of their culture, the fallen world around them. And so they're trying to in a sense, hold to God's wisdom, but really we're finding themselves more and more adhering to the wisdom of the world. And Paul, I think, here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians is trying to remind them that from the perspective of the, of the kingdom of heaven, the world's wisdom is like the emperor's new clothes. It's a product of men's imaginations, prideful men's imaginations. And so in chapter 2, what we saw there the last couple of weeks as we looked at it is Paul is crying out to the Corinthian church and saying, the emperor has no clothes. There's nothing there in the world's wisdom. Stop trying to put on the wisdom of the world. Well, here in chapter 3, he goes back to the issue of divisions. So what that says to us is that when he switched topics there in the middle of chapter 2 and stopped talking about the divisions in the church and started talking about the fact that they were loving the world's wisdom and obscuring the wisdom of God, that he wasn't actually going down a rabbit trail, he wasn't changing the topic, he wasn't going on a, a digression, he was actually going to the root of the problem. He was actually saying, hey, all this quarreling, all this fighting, all this rivalry, all this, this partisanship that's going on in your church, that's the symptoms. The root of it is your spiritual pride, which has this driving need to be accepted by the world, to be looked upon with respect by the world. What he's doing here in chapter 3 is he's beginning to unmask that pride that's in their hearts, and he's showing them what it really is, which is what he calls spiritual immaturity. It's spiritual immaturity. He says, you are infants in Christ. Now, can you imagine how that came across to the Corinthian Christians? Here they are trying to impress the world 
trying to wear the world's wisdom to, be, to, get, to avoid being seen as foolish. And Paul says, you know who you really are in the eyes of God? You are infants in Christ. I don't know how it was when you were a kid, but if you really wanted to get somebody mad, you'd say, man, you're acting like a baby. And that's really what Paul's doing here. He's looking at the Corinthian Christians and says, you think you're hot stuff. You think you're so impressive. You're a bunch of whining babies is what you are. That's what he's saying. You're infants in Christ. Spiritual immaturity is an ongoing issue in the church. What causes spiritual immaturity? What causes it? Well, first, I need to point out that Paul calls these people his brothers. And of course, in New Testament language, brothers means both the men and women of the church. He calls them fellow Christians. And it's important to recognize that because it'd be very easy to read how he describes them and start to think that he's talking about people who don't believe at all, that have never been born again, that have never come to know the truth. But see, that's, he's, he's, he's using the language and the description of what the world is like, and he's saying, you're acting like that, even though you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he's saying. We saw last week that all true Christians are spiritual people. All true Christians are spiritual in the sense of the New Testament, defines it that means somebody who's been given the gift of the holy spirit have been born again been given new eyes new hearts new minds so that you can see and understand truth and you have a new heart so that you want to to walk in the truth and to know god and to be like christ as we saw last week at the end of chapter two paul says we've been given the gift of the mind of christ so we have the holy spirit Paul says in Romans 8, verse 9, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So all Christians have the Holy Spirit, and he's addressing them as brothers in Christ, but he's saying that you're not acting like you have the Holy Spirit. There are only two kinds of people in the world. We keep bumping up against that. There's only two kinds of people in the world according to God's perspective. Those who are spiritual, who have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and those who are of the flesh or fleshly. That doesn't mean, though, that all spiritual people, all people who have the Holy Spirit, are acting in wisdom. Some of them, many of them, are still walking in foolishness. Not all of them are walking by the Spirit, even though the Spirit is in them and with them. Now, Paul thinks back to the days when he first came to Corinth. Remember, we're talking three years earlier from when he wrote this letter. Three years earlier, he came to Corinth and he preached the gospel and he led people to Christ, and he began discipling them. And then after a period of time, he left, and then Apollos came in after him to continue the work of discipling the people of God in Corinth. And remember, and Paul says, think back to those early days, when you first heard the gospel, when you first believed that this all was true. Think back to those days. He says, he says in those days, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. They were born again, they had the Spirit of God, but they were thinking and acting like the world still. And that's still true today. When people come to Christ, there's still so much of the way the world thinks, the values of the world, the worldview of the world. There's so much of the world still in us when we first come to believe. And Paul says, I had to address you as infants, as newborns, spiritually speaking. And that's understandable. They were spiritually immature because they were newborns, spiritually speaking. But he says in verse 2, even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. 
He's saying, you're, you're acting like a bunch of spiritual infants, and you should at least be teenagers by now. Is what he's saying. You should have grown in the last three years. There should be evidence of spiritual maturity and spiritual fruit in you, and you're still acting like the world. Now, he implies in this short passage, he implies, I think, two reasons, two causes for their spiritual maturity. And we need to take these things to heart because these two causes of spiritual maturity are still rampant in the church today. The first one is that immaturity, spiritual immaturity, comes from a poor spiritual diet. It comes from a poor spiritual diet. He says, Paul says, back in those early days when you were newborn Christians, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food. Of course, milk, by milk, he means the essentials, the, the, the basics, the ABCs, the kindergarten level of the Christian faith. Entry-level Christianity, Christianity 101. You know what infants are like. They really don't understand very much, and they don't do a whole lot more than eat and sleep. And spiritually speaking, that's really what new believers need. They need to just consume spiritual milk so that they begin to develop and grow and mature. And he says, back then, three years ago, that's where you were, and that was appropriate for where you were. We didn't have a lot of expectations for you in terms of understanding and application and and obedience and discipleship. Peter refers to that stage of the Christian life in 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's the wonder of of the mother's milk. That's all that the infant needs in order to begin to grow and develop and become a mature adult. We begin with the milk. And I think it's important for us to remember that, that when people come into the church, no matter how they may appear outwardly, when they first come to understand the gospel, they are spiritual infants. And we need to keep our expectations in line with that. That they need to just receive the milk of the word of God so that they can begin to grow and develop, not have high expectations of them. I mean, one of my things, I remember back when... uh, musicians from when I was growing up, a lot of musicians from my era when I was uh, listening to, to popular music, a lot of them have actually made professions of faith since their early, wild, uh, dark days. And it just frustrated me to no end that the church, it was the church that did them damage by sticking a microphone in front of their face as soon as they made any profession of faith and said, treat them like a prophet, treat them like a spiritual leader. It was just wrong, and it, I watched it destroy a lot of those personalities. You know, the the problem is in the church is that we don't treat people according to the level of faith. That's what the New Testament teaches us to do. It's easy to forget that people that are very accomplished in the world come into the church as spiritual infants. They may have incredible gifts. They may have these charismatic personalities. They may have high intelligence. They may may be very accomplished people and have great worldly status, And those things can obscure the fact that, spiritually speaking, they need to be fed milk. They need to be nurtured. They need to be cared for as spiritual infants. Physical, mental, emotional, and relational development are a separate issue from spiritual development, the the, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So what Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians is that the pride, the divisions, the quarreling, The sectarianism, these were, you know, that's to be expected of people who had just come out of the world and had just begun to taste of the things of God. 
that's, I wouldn't say it's acceptable, but it's understood at that stage. There's still a lot of the world in a new believer. But what they were doing three years later is saying that they hadn't grown and developed since then. They should have moved on to solid food, Paul says. They should be showing signs of spiritual maturity. Now, what's solid food? Well, I think there's another parallel passage, which is very similar to this passage in 1 Corinthians 3, that goes into a little more detail about this solid food. Listen to Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There is a, probably the clearest description in the scriptures of what the Bible means by solid food. It's deeper insights into the principles, the teachings, the applications of God's word. It's a deeper understanding of the word of righteousness, being skilled in the word of righteousness. It's deeper insight into discerning good from evil through the word of God. It's wisdom from above. It's not just coming to a deeper theoretical understanding of scripture. I know when I was in seminary, we used to think that we were such hot stuff because we could explain the difference between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. And we just, we walked around with our nose up in the air thinking we were so spiritually mature when we were actually still very much spiritual elementary school kids probably in the the big scheme of things. Understanding deep theological truths doesn't make you spiritually mature, and a lot of people who do understand deep theological truths are actually spiritual infants. Maturity, as the Hebrews and as Paul defines it, maturity is growing in faith and trusting in the Lord. It's growing in the wisdom from above, which it begins with the knowledge of Scripture, but it's much more than the knowledge of Scripture. It's being able to apply Scripture to life, and it's a pursuit of holiness. Maturity is becoming more like Jesus Christ. And it's the word of God that gives faith and strengthens faith and produces that maturity. I do need to point out, though, and I don't want to get get anyone the wrong idea, the gospel is not spiritual milk. The gospel is in spiritual milk, but the gospel is still the center of all solid food. And there's always a danger in the church that we think, well, once we learned the gospel and understand the gospel, we can graduate from that and move on to the deeper things, move on to the the bigger things. No. Matter of fact, you are not going to be spiritually mature until you understand that every level of spiritual development, until Christ comes in again and makes you perfectly like him, every level of spiritual growth is centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have believed that gospel since I was in high school And I have spent my whole adult life preparing to and teaching that gospel. And what I have learned at every level of development is that my understanding of the gospel gets deeper and deeper and broader and broader. And that it's such a deep well. I feel like after all these decades of teaching the word of God, I've only 
gotten just below the surface with it. The gospel is what changes your life. The gospel is what gives you meaning and purpose in life. The gospel is what world history is about. It's, it's everything. And so the gospel is in the milk that spiritual infants need, but it's also in the most solid, most hearty food that the most mature believer can digest. It's at the very center of the word of God. The second cause of spiritual immaturity that Paul points to here is bad spiritual influences. Look at verse 3. He says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In verse 4 he says, Are you not being merely human? He's, he's, He's talking about the symptoms that were causing such problems in the Corinthian church. He's talking about jealousy and envy and strife and rivalry and quarreling. And he's saying, at the root of that, at the very root of that is pride and a desire to be like the world. He's saying, instead of being like Christ, you are like, it's like you're of the flesh. You're acting in the human way, he says. You're acting as though you are merely human. In other words, as though you are not spiritual, as though you don't have the Holy Spirit. That's how you're acting. And that's consistent with what Paul says elsewhere. Remember in Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is in your life and he's working, what you're going to see are the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness. These are the fruit of the Spirit. But he also gives us a list of what are the works of the flesh. If the Spirit is not in you, here's what you can expect in your life. Let me give you that list. Galatians 5, 19 and 20 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Did you notice that most of that list is made up of the same things that Paul is saying is going on in the church at Corinth? All about division and rivalry and envy. He's saying you're showing the works of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. We saw that this is because they want to be accepted by the world. They want to be admired by the world. That's pride-driven, it's of the flesh, and it's reflecting the fact that they are not only are they not moving from spiritual milk to solid food, but they're actually putting themselves in the context of of worldly influences that are drawing them back into their old way of thinking. We know from 1 and 2 Corinthians that the Corinthian Christians hadn't separated themselves from the values and the mindset and the attitudes and worldview of the people around them in Corinth. We know that because one of the clearest uh, statements about the need to separate from the world is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read that to you. That's 2 Corinthians 6 beginning in verse 14. Listen to what Paul says to these same Corinthian Christians. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And let me say this again. This is not a passage that is only to be read to people thinking about getting married. It deals with all of life, not just whoever you marry. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be to me sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I do think that this is one of the reasons why the church in general in the United States is so immature is that we do not take these kind of passages in God's word seriously. Now that doesn't mean, I hate that I have to say this, but that doesn't mean that we have to go be Amish. It doesn't mean even that we have to go buy cars from Christian car salesmen and buy our gas from Christian gas station owners and listen only to Christian radio and watch only Christian television. That's not the kind of separation that this is talking about. It's a, it's, it's a separation from the mindset, the values, the philosophy, the worldview of the world around you. It's a lot easier to separate your gas buying and your grocery buying from the world than it is to separate your mindset, your values, your hopes, your dreams, your sense of purpose and meaning from the world around you. And that's what the scripture's talking about. Jesus said when he prayed for the church in John 17, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I don't want some anti-defamation league for the church. I don't want some protected conclave up in the mountains for my church. I want them out there in the world. I want them rubbing elbows and interacting with unbelievers all around. I want them in the world. But, he says, I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that's what the Corinthians weren't doing. They weren't feeding themselves spiritually, and they weren't separating themselves from the mindset and values of the world around them. And it was causing division, and it was destroying the church. You know what's interesting? Clement of Rome was one of the early church fathers. And we actually have a letter that he wrote to the Corinthian Christians 40 years after this letter was written. You know what's so discouraging to read Clement's letter to the Corinthian church? is it sounds just like First and Second Corinthians. He's saying all the same things. Stop being so jealous. Stop being so divisive. Stop fighting among yourselves. The church never grew up in, in a generation. And you say, how could that be if the Spirit is at work? Well, should we, we as American Christians be surprised that the church could go a generation or two generations or three generations and be caught up in spiritual immaturity? We've been seeing it in our own context so how does spiritual maturity happen then how do we get spiritual maturity well first of all you got to define spiritual maturity and we've been doing that kind of indirectly let me spell it out for you what does spiritual maturity look like the easy one word answer to that is Jesus Christ but let me be a little more specific First of all, it is knowing God's word. And when I say the word knowing, I mean knowing in the biblical sense of the word knowing. It means not just having an intellectual apprehension of the word of God. It means knowing the word of God intellectually, relationally, and experientially. Loving the word of God. In Hebrews 5, we saw that it's called being skilled in the word of righteousness. Or having your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Knowing God's word is where spiritual maturity begins. Secondly, pursuing holiness. 
and I mean pursuing holiness not in the immature, worldly way of doing it through self-will, legalistic willpower, but doing it out of a love for God and a desire to be like Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes it in his own life in this way. He says, it's forgetting what lies behind. How do you do that? How do you forget what's behind in your pursuit of holiness? See, the gospel is at the center of every stage of spiritual development. Paul is saying, I forget what lies behind because of the cross. And straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Knowing God's word, pursuing holiness, and then to the real heart of it, knowing and trusting Christ implicitly and intimately. In Ephesians 3, Paul calls it comprehending with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what maturity looks like. In Ephesians 4, he describes it in this way. It's attaining to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Knowing the word, pursuing holiness, and drawing near to Christ relationally, experientially, intimately, that's what maturity looks like. And Paul tells us that there's two paths to that, improving your spiritual diet and improving your spiritual influences. Do you know what that sounds a lot like? It sounds a lot like what we call the means of grace. The means of grace is how you get from where you are to greater spiritual maturity. It's always been that way. Now, maybe you come from a church tradition where the means of grace is not a familiar term to you. In other Christian traditions, they call it the disciplines of grace, or they call it Christian, or, uh, they call it the uh, Christian discipleship, or disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And that's fine as long as you understand that it's all about grace. The problem with calling it spiritual disciplines is it sounds like you just have something you have to use sweat equity to accomplish. They're means of grace. And I love, our small group is actually doing a study in a book, a new book called The Habits of Grace. And it's about what used to be called spiritual disciplines. But in the beginning of that book, he starts out just by talking, he gives a scriptural description of how God has started this river of grace before the foundation of the world when he elected a people for himself. And that this river of grace has flown through history, has flowed through history. And it's just, it's like this flood that has swept over the planet. And it's the water of life. It's, it's, it, it's, it's what we hunger and thirst for. It's what we need. And so the means of grace is just the means by which we put ourselves in the midst of that flood. It's where we put ourselves in proximity to where that grace is. And I like that emphasis because these are means of grace. These are the means by which Christ grows us up. And they've never changed. I'd love to tell you that I could give you a a three-day seminar out in the Midwest somewhere where you could go and, and get one of these means of grace and you would be instantly matured and you'd come back a changed person. I wish it was that easy. I wish I could put an app on your iPhone. I wish I could tell you a radio program to listen to. It's just not that easy. The means of grace that Christ has given to the church are the word and prayer, the sacraments, 
the worship and fellowship of God's people, the church discipline, these are the means of grace that God uses to grow his people into spiritual maturity. There are no shortcuts. There are no man-made additives. It's how you become mature. You know, if you're an IT specialist, and somebody comes to you and complains they can't get their computer to work, and you tell them it's because it's not plugged in, and then they come back to you two weeks later and say, my computer's still not working, and you say, did you plug it in? And they say, well, no. And if they do that the third time and the fourth time, you get really frustrated. If you're a botanist, and they come to you and say, I can't get my plants to grow, and you say to them, well, did you put them in the sunlight? And they say, well, no. And then they come back two, uh, two weeks later and say, well, they're still not growing. I say, well, did you put them in the sunlight? And they say, well, no. And they keep doing that. You know what that, how frustrating that would be? Now feel my pain as a pastor. <laughs> People come and they complain and they say, I'm not growing spiritually. And I say, well, have you been reading your Bible? Have you been studying your Bible? Have you been meditating in your Bible? Have you been praying? Have you been going to church regularly? Have you been a part of a small group Bible study? Have you been in Christian fellowship? Do you have a Christian mentor? Are you mentoring somebody? Well, no. Okay, make an appointment, two more weeks, come back and tell me the same thing. It is frustrating. And believe me, I'm frustrated with myself too. Because I have that kind of a complaint time in my own talk with the Lord. Why am I not growing? And he says, have you been praying? Have you been worshiping? Have you been regularly observing the sacraments? Let me read to you Psalm 1, because Psalm 1 is probably one of the most loved psalms in all of Scripture. You probably know it by heart. But in light of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians about how to grow up from spiritual immaturity, listen to what the psalmist tells us. This is, this is so long ago. He's spelling out the means of grace. Listen to what he says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Listen to this picture. This is the most consistent picture of biblical maturity that you'll ever find any part of Scripture. You'll find it all through Scripture. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You say, that's too simple. But that's all that that's the only way. There is no other way. So let me ask you, who where are you walking lately? Who are your counselors lately? Are you delighting in the Word of God? In Matthew 18, verse 3, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And you say to yourself, wait, is Jesus contradicting Paul or is Paul contradicting Jesus? Because Paul is saying, stop being spiritual babies. And Jesus is saying, go be like a child. Well, they're not contradicting each other. Because Jesus is talking about the attitude that the Holy Spirit produces in the mature believer, which is a childlike faith. Childlike in the sense that it takes God's word at face value and trusts in God's word implicitly, like a child, and follows wherever the word of God leads. That's childlike faith. That's an implicit, comprehensive trust in the word of the one who's in authority over you. That's childlike faith. What Paul's talking about 
is childish faith. Childish faith, which he says is like the world. It's of the flesh. It's like mere men who don't have the spirit at all. Is your faith like the little boy who had the humility and the wisdom to say that the emperor has no clothes? Or is your faith like the townspeople who in their immaturity and their fleshiness praised the wisdom of the world for its impressiveness and its glory? Let's pray. Father, give us a childlike faith and take away from us the childishness of the faith that we profess. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. As you look at us, you see so much immaturity. Forgive us for how we've neglected the means of grace that you've given to your church by which we might draw near to Christ and become like him. Forgive us for the pride, for thinking that we can get by without those things, that we can get there without them. Lord, deepen in us a love for your word, a desire to pray, a desire to worship, a desire to to receive the sacraments, a desire to be held accountable by the spiritual leaders in our lives. Lord, make us mature. We want to be like Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.